Congratulations to all the years and days and, uh, and so forth. That's great to see. And uh, I tell you, it's a weird feeling being the oldest rat in the barn. <laughs> it's, it's a strange kind of phenomenon, but yeah, I was the youngest member. As I mentioned a little earlier, I was the youngest member in everything I attended for years. Now I'm almost always the oldest rat in every barn I get in. And it's a, I'm the oldest member in my, oldest male in my state, oldest active male. And so it's amazing how it happens. They from the youngest twerp to the oldest goat. And so, but I, I'll take it. I'll take it very, very well. Uh, I got some really heartbreaking news. No questions. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> we got, got, got you being from South, I'm, I'm, I talk slow, think slow, react slow, and so we're going to move on and get into a, a part of the program that I dearly love. We got two sessions to go, and uh, tonight, dealing with some of the things we're talking about on relationships, unity, and stuff like that. We're going to be doing that, and we're going to do it through the traditions and. Uh, so I want to deal with that at a personal level, yeah, because it's a, it's a phenomenally important thing. Uh, I, I'll just tell you this by way of uh, salesmanship. I probably deliberately use traditions, deliberately use traditions more than I do steps. You know, where I'm going to pull on a tradition and use it for something far more often than steps. You know, steps are how I live. You know, I don't need to pull a step. That's how I live. Traditions, on the other hand, are just tremendously good for follow, for, for uh, handling specific problems. Of all the people that ever ever contact me, I would say, you know, like you know, sometimes be in a town and uh, say something that kind of dawned on somebody after I leave, and uh, they'll call me. And about 90% of the time, it's a tradition issue, not a step issue. Because that, that's the whole business of how you relate to the world around you. So that, that's what we're going to deal with. And then tomorrow, we'll wrap up with um, what I think is you, you talk about being rocketed into a fourth dimension and into a new phase of existence. Uh, we'll be dealing with the part of the program that shifts from me to we and to our real purpose. And so we'll close out on that. And then we'll give the homework assignment. And uh, Alex has agreed to be the stool pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> for, for anybody that doesn't take care of it, then we'll send the gang up here for that. So, anyway, that, that, that's, that's what we'll take off with on that. And, uh, you know, traditions are an extremely important thing to me. I know early on, you know, when I was in the program and I thought AA was just a little covey of drunks that, that, that got together every once in a while, Tradition were the first thing that gave me vision of what Alcoholics Anonymous was. That is more than just a little gaggle of drunks sitting in the corner of a church basement. Bless you. Now that's the weakest sneeze I have ever heard. <laughs> I bet your ears are popping. <laughs> I would never point that out publicly. <laughs> but... But it really did. It gave me a, a vision that it's not just a little gaggle of folks somewhere, but it really is a program that has big mo and it literally reaches around this world. And it gave me vision. It, it meant a lot to me. It always has. I use them in every area of my life. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier, and I'll elaborate on it a little bit more. 
I'm going to talk fast as I can because it's hard to do traditions in a, in a limited amount of time. Uh, I, I better not tell too many war stories. I won't be able to get there. I, a while back, I was uh, had some people call me from Tennessee, and they were having a district meeting, and they wanted me to come over and do a, 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 a deal on, on traditions. And I said, well, I'll be happy to do it. When it happened to be a date, I was going to be in Georgia. And uh, they said, well, isn't there any way you can do it? I said, good God, I don't know. But I knew my schedule in Georgia was that I didn't have anything to do afternoon. And I also checked to see that there was a plane that would get me from Georgia to Tennessee if I could get there on time. So I, I said, all right, if it's, it's a tradition now, if, if it had been just wanting to do altar calls or something, I might not have done it. But it's a tradition. I, I said, let me see what I can do. So we did. Flew into that uh, town in Tennessee, Chattanooga, Knoxville, somewhere in Tennessee. And uh, <laughs> I only got through six traditions. And they've been on my case ever since. Now, you got to come back. Man, you didn't do your job. We spent all that money getting you over here, and you didn't even finish what you <laughs> So, so anyway, I got to go back to Tennessee and finish jobs. I'll, I'll, I'll get at it. Um, I do like to look at tradition from a personal standpoint, and I do use them in, in everything that I do. I, I give you an example of something that, to me, is about you know common welfare is what the first tradition is about. Yeah, our common welfare comes first. Personal recovery depends on a unity. Just like my belief is that the first step is the most important step. Because that's the launching pad. That's the foundation. That's where we start, you know. And so it's fundamental to everything else. And it, 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 it sort of opens the door for the rest of the steps. And the first tradition, same way, that our welfare comes first. If we don't take care of our unity, then we've got nothing for anybody. So we, we must protect what protects us. And, uh, I, I just give you a couple, just a, one for sure, and then maybe one more if I sneak it in. Uh, what that means in real life, you know, what does it mean to me? And I know just from our conversation, many of you are dealing with things that are, are very much in the fringes of this neighborhood, at least. Yeah, I'm a. You gathered by now, I'm sure that I'm I'm a group guy. Yeah, I'm not a meat junkie. I'm a group guy. I'm somebody who is committed to a home group. That's where I. That's where I belong. That's my foundation. It's where I do my most important work. That's my launching pad. And, and, and so it's a very important thing to me. And uh, the group I'm in, we started it 14 years ago, the outgrowth of Big Book Workshops, and, uh, and it's an excellent group. We have all legacies in place. Every service is provided in AA is provided in our group. Every service action is done in AA. It exists, it's staffed, it's functional. So it's a very important kind of a thing to me, a very important place to, 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 to get well. And so, and it's something I have loyalty to. Now sometimes I have to be gone. I won't get back tomorrow, uh, Monday night in time for me. Well, I won't get back till midnight, so I know it won't be me. They'll probably be gone by then, maybe. <laughs> and so I won't get back. But I'd like to be there as much as I possibly can. And, I was out, I was out of town on an extended trip for, 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 for something. And while I was out, our group, in its wisdom, made a decision to do something that was totally unacceptable to me. I'm the great white father, you know. I mean, they're not supposed to do that. And, uh, but it did. They made a drastic decision. 
And the decision was we have, you know, like we have an open speaker meeting once a week, and then on Monday night we have three different groups. One of them's open. It's a newcomer group, but it's open. Anybody who wants to walk in the door. We have one that's step tradition oriented and then a book discussion. And, and while I was away, the decision was made by my home group to discontinue the big book meeting in order to strengthen the step tradition meeting. Well, I about had a baby when I, when I got back. <laughs> and I, I'll tell you, I was, I was absolutely, now I knew that my loyal partners in crime would, would not do something just because I was gone. And they knew that it might be difficult to do if I was yelling and screaming while they were trying to vote. And so, so I, I know they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't take advantage of my absence to vote something in. But, but they did. And, and so, when they got back and, and I heard that, have you ever been some just too mad to do something? You ever been so mad that you just didn't trust yourself to do something? That's what I was, and, and so that Alex won't quit bumming, will he? He he's been, he's been hustling people for years. <laughs> yeah, but but they when I got that word, I was, I was so angry. But, you know, it's only our basic text. It's only where we draw our entire program from. You know, it's not like it doesn't, it doesn't matter much. The, uh, it's, but I was so mad, I knew that if I did anything, I would overdo it. And when you're the oldest rat in the barn, you have to be mindful of the fact that you can do some damage unintentionally. And just not, not just because you're the oldest rat in the barn, but that helps a great deal. And so when, when the fearless leader is angry, it, it sort of reverberates in, in a deal. And I knew if I did anything quickly, I would, I would do some damage, some real damage. And so I had to bite my tongue and not do anything. I, I, I evaluated what, what my feeling was about. Why am I so angry? Is it because I was insulted, because the fearless leader was not, not involved in that thing? Was it because I suspected a sneak attack and do it while the old man's gone? You know, and I, I wanted to evaluate that and assure why I was so upset. Did I really believe that this was injurious to our purpose, to, to our purpose in our group? Well, when I got through, I finally got, got resolved that there was absolutely no personal deal there. It didn't, did not have to do with me. It had to do with what I truly believe if we take out the basic text, what else would you take out? Yeah, and so that was just totally unacceptable to me. And so I, I didn't do anything. The first business meeting afterward, I, I sat there, held my peace, never, and I never discussed it with a soul, except my sponsor, my higher power, and me. I didn't discuss it with anybody else, nobody. And uh, so I bit my tongue on the on the first meeting. Second business meeting, I'm still too mad and didn't trust myself. And then third business meeting, I, I, was, I wasn't sure I'd do anything or not, but right before the, the end of the, the meeting, uh, the, it, was, it, it was in a regular meeting, I, I, I stuck my hand up to say something. And uh, I said, a while back, we made a decision. Now, I say we because that's my home group. 
If I'm not there, my vote is exactly what they vote because it's weak. You know, it's not, I don't stand apart from that. So I said, we made a decision a while back to fix something that I don't think was broken. And I'd like to request that we reinstate the big book groups starting tonight. And a hush fell over the crowd. <laughs> and you could have heard a pin drop. And there was that electric moment where one guy asked one simple little question. And, and we handled that, moved on, unanimously voted to reinstate it. Now, now just think about that. See, if I hadn't been thinking about the common welfare and I just kept thinking about me and, and my feelings, I could have done a lot of damage. So when I talk about common welfare, I either mean it or I don't. And if I don't take care of that group, it can't take care of me. And so that's what I have to do, that the, that the we is bigger than the me. And, and so that was as tough a test as I've had for a good while to, uh, to deal with common welfare in a way that was extremely important to me. And uh, so sometimes, you know, that, that's what it is. When if I have to get beyond myself... And that's what the common welfare is about. If it isn't good for the total, it's probably not good for me. And so that's what that tradition is about. It's about, about assuring that we're looking after the common welfare. Uh, I'll, I'll wait on to another one on another aspect, of, and another wrinkle on that. But to me, that's a very, very fundamental thing. It's like the first step opens the door to every other step. The first tradition opens the door to every other tradition. Because they're basically saying, here's how we protect our welfare. And it will enumerate the things we go at. So that's fundamental to me. The second one is, uh, good God, don't tell me if we're asking, that uh, somebody recited for me, Pete. For a group purpose, I'm getting brain dead. For a group purpose, there's but one ultimate authority, loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. And uh, that's, that's all of these traditions very important. That's certainly one. For our group purpose, what is our group purpose? It'll, it'll define it a little later on. Our, for our, our group purpose, we only have one purpose. And that's to carry the message to the alcoholic still suffers. That's what we're about. And for that purpose, there's only one ultimate authority. And it's certainly not the oldest rat in the barn. It's God as we understand Him, expressed through the group conscience. And that's what happened in that meeting, I think, in that time. But, but you know, group, I, I personally think the term group conscience is, is, is used inappropriately in our fellowship far too often. I've heard it here this weekend where we refer to a business meeting as a group conscience. That's not a, that's not a group conscience. You know, a business meeting is not that. That's taking care of business. It's taking care of the routine stuff. We need coffee, we need something, somebody's going to get the key, whatever. But that's just routine take care of business. And uh, so group conscience goes beyond that. Group conscience is prayerful consideration. Like I was doing that individually to deal with that issue. And I think the group probably did that very quickly when, when, when I raised the, the issue. And so for that purpose... There's only one ultimate authority as expressed in the group conscious. What does that mean in, in real life? In, uh, in looking at 
a, 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 an issue that has real impact on our purpose needs to go to a group conscience. I'll give you an example. We, we just did a thing that, uh, you know, the thing of reimbursing people for expenses was, was uh, it's, it's an ongoing issue that we have in the fellowship. Yeah. I went for 25 years and would never accept reimbursement for like if I did a service job at GSR, DCM, something like that. I would never take reimbursement for, for my expenses. And one day it dawned on me after about 25 years that I was not being generous. What I was doing was being very selfish. And what I'm doing was denying my fellow members the right of participation. The heroes taking care of everything. Now, I didn't intend that. There was no malicious intent. I genuinely, my gratitude was deep, and I thought I was doing that. But everybody else's gratitude is deep, too. And so what I'm doing was depriving those folk of the right of participation. And I don't have the right to do that. First time I ever took a check for reimbursement, I swear to God, I had to back up to, to take the check from the, this little gal that was right. And I felt like a fool. But I knew it was the right thing. Now that was a personal conscience. You know, we had a deal that I, I read into a thing. It's, uh, you know, like, you probably don't see this in Canada, but we had extremely high fuel costs in the... <laughs> I tell by looking at the tanks, it's contagious because y'all have caught it too. But it is bad news. And I, I drove somewhere to an adjoining state to just speak at an anniversary. Now, I you know, didn't pay no attention to that. But for some reason, I don't know, I guess I just had it on my mind. So I went to that thing, and, and it was a, it was an eating meat, and you know, folks brought in stuff, you know, and all that kind of thing. And I spent $82 going from my home to that meeting and back. I spent $82. The other people in the group put a buck or two in the plate. And I thought, come on now. <laughs> you know, something wrong with that picture. That, uh, you know, self-support means more than what I put in. It also has to do with my taking away somebody's responsibility. And so when I bother to accept the weight and carry, I pay $82 and they pay one or two. I'm not being fair to that group. Yeah, I'm not letting them have the responsibility that they, that they have. And so I had that on my mind a little bit. I never did say anything to that group because that was all history. And it's all right, you know, it's not going to break me. It wasn't the money anyway. There's a principle involved in that called self-support. And when I got back to my group, I thought, now we, we, we are a group that's pretty well organized. We have speaker meetings every Thursday night, and we don't just take who we can get, not who's readily available. We, we look for speakers. We want diversity. We want people of different persuasions. We want people of different colors. We don't want everybody to be handsome like me. We, <laughs> we want some ugly people up there. I mean, some good, it looks like real drunks, you know. So we want a variety of people. Yeah, we want to, we want our speakers to look like America. Yeah, we want to be a representative of the sheriff. So we don't just take who's available, we take who we want. We have it set up so that we want to have a local speaker one time a month because we want to be good neighbors to our friends. We want female, we want gay, we want straight, we, you name it, whatever. 
And uh, so when you do that, there's going to be tra- travel involved. And my little experience up there with that 82 bucks made me more sensitive to that. I was thinking about it. I thought, we're not being self-supporting. We asked somebody to spend 100 bucks to come speak at our meeting. There's no self-support in that. That's called using people is what that is. And uh, so I brought that up at a business meeting and said, I was real proud of my group. I was really proud of them because there was a lot of reluctance to get into that reimbursing folk. They understood the principle. But my group is extremely, extremely proud is the wrong word. They feel very strongly about our support of, of AA services at all levels. You know, we contribute every, every three months. We go broke by design. We spend every bit of money we have. You know, we take care of our fundamental expenses. We have a prudent reserve in there. Everything beyond that, we break out four different ways. We, we, we contribute equal amounts to our local intergroup, our district, our area functions that take in our state, and our national, which takes in the general service office. So we, we routinely do that. We don't have to make a decision. It is a decision. And so we do that every time. And my group's reluctance was they didn't want to lower the level of our contribution. I was really proud of, of, of our bunch for that. But at the same time, we, we're either going to continue using people or we're not. We're going to be self-supporting by paying our, our, our way or we're not. And that was a, a weighty group conscience issue. And we finally wound up getting an ad hoc committee to go to the tedious detail, bring back a recommendation, and they did. And so we came back with something, and we now do that as a matter of course. And that, that's the deal, you know, that, that that's what does a group operate on? And when it's a real issue, that is the prayerful consideration. That's what a group conscience is. It's prayerful consideration of a, of a matter that would affect our purpose, eh? That, and that's what it is. And uh, so it, it's a vitally thing. Leaders are but trusted servants. They don't govern. We have leaders. A number of leaders stood up in this group tonight. Now, everyone just stood up right then. <laughs> oh, he's quitting. He's not. <laughs> I said, the leader, he's leaving. <laughs> oh. Well, <laughs> God, as much as I drank you today, I know how to open a bottle. <laughs> but leaders, uh, I'll let you in on a little secret that, that it's just my, my secret, but I believe that anybody, I just pick a number, anybody over five years sober is a leader. I don't care whether you want to be or not. Don't care whether you even agree to it or not. You are. Well, who do new people look to, eh? You're not going to look to somebody that's got five days, are you? You're going to look to somebody that's got some time. So they've got the, they're, they're a proven commodity. And you're going to be able to trust that they're going to not just get out and get drunk and talk about you. And so at least <laughs> we'll talk about you after you're in the program. <laughs> but... Yeah, that's, I mean, that's who you look to, eh? Yeah, that you, you gotta look, and so leaders don't have to be barking commands, it's a matter of the role that you, that you demonstrate. It's a role of, of how do you carry out your responsibility. That's, that's where people learn from, by watching what you do. I was at an area assembly one time, and if you've, if you've done any of that, you know that we, we make a, an art out of voting. I swear to God, we can vote something to death. And, uh, 
was in one of those one time, and we were voting on some really a no-brainer kind of an issue. And we were voting over and over and over. And I, I just got tired of it. I did a little quick nose count, and I saw that sucker wasn't going anywhere. So I switched my vote. <laughs> I'd been voting for it, and I voted against it. Now, I couldn't have told you how anybody else in that group voted. I bet you I had 25 or 30 people ask me why I changed my vote. That's what leadership is. Yeah, you don't have to bark commands. It's just people watch what you do. And then they're going to emulate that if they believe that you practice what you preach. You know, they're going to follow it. So there's a leadership deal that's there. You don't have to run for it. It just comes with the territory. That's my belief. Doesn't make it true. And, uh, but very important that we do have leaders. We have to have leaders. Otherwise, we're just proud. So you got to have leadership. You know, and, that, and, that, and that's what we do. Rotating leadership. We don't let people camp on offices forever. You know, that we rotate that. And, uh, and the third one is one we talked about a little bit earlier with singleness of purpose. That, that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. The short form, that, that the long form goes further and it says, uh, it, it, any, quote that thing, somebody. I need to read it, John. Two or more. Now, I don't mean to correct my helper, but it was two or more. <laughs> well, three is more. <laughs> yeah, two or more. Yes, yeah, so that's all it takes. They're gathered for the purpose of recovery. May call themselves an AA group, provided they have no other affiliation. And what that means is that, say, if we wanted to go out here in the parking lot and start a move to, uh, to uh, have meetings about anti-retreats, you know, we could do that. We could do that. We're free to do it. Anybody could do it. It's a simple thing. And that the only requirement for membership, what's the quote in there about that people who suffer, is open to people who suffer from alcoholism? You have the long form of the tradition. I wish I had one I could see because my eyes are. Uh, I can't see yeah. yeah. Well, your older brother's got the glasses. You got, yeah, I go to a young guy. <laughs> there you go. Hence, you may refuse none who wish to recover. No AA membership ever depends on money or conformity. Any two or three alcoholics gathered together for sobriety may call themselves an AA group, provided that as a group they have no other affiliation. Read the first two sentences one more time. Yeah, and that, that's a whole different language than what's said in the short firm. The only requirement members desire to stop drinking. It's a whole different language. It ought to include all suffering alcoholism. It doesn't matter what else. You know, the first first real issue about singleness of purpose was when the first gay person came in, and there was a real real brouhaha among those early pioneers about whether they should be allowed. And that's what, where that came from. It doesn't matter what else you bring. If you have alcoholism, you're in the right place. And so that, that's the, and I think we really give it a cheap shot when we say the only requirements. Yeah, I got a, I got a golden retriever that has that, the desire to stop drinking. Never has had a drink, but he wants to quit before he starts. Yeah. <laughs> I offered him some one time. He wouldn't take it. So, not a real dog. I got it. 
But anyway, that, that one is one that gets booted around, kicked around a great deal. And it's one that, that I always like to kind of underline that a little bit because it is such a widespread, prevalent kind of a concern in the, in the fellowship. And, and so this is the baseline for that kind of thing. Fourth one is about autonomy. That each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or A as a whole. Yeah, I like to break it down, as you've gathered by now, to personal. Every one of us in this room is entitled to autonomy. Every member is entitled to autonomy. Every one of us. That, that we can, we can AA any way we want to provided it doesn't interfere with somebody else's right to do the same thing. And uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a, of a tricky thing. Like, I don't have the right, because I get the privilege of speaking, I don't have the right to get up here and use gutter language. I don't have that right. I don't have that right to impose that on what may be a highly spiritual moment for you. And I'm abusing my license to do something when I start doing that. I'll tell you one reason that's important. Well, it's important to me just because in general. But what it looks like in real life. I was over in Tennessee speaking at a conference one night, uh, one, one weekend. And the guy who spoke on Saturday night, I'd never seen him before or since. But... He thought he was supposed to do a stand-up comedy act. Now, you know, our counter tonight did a great job of doing that. A very enjoyable countdown. Sometimes they're painful, but that was, that was well done. Good fun. And, uh, that is good clean fun, eh? Well, this guy thought he was supposed to be funny. He sounded like a Las Vegas comic, if you've been there and enjoyed that special thrill. That... <laughs> He was, he, he was, the, the poor guy was not funny. I mean, in no way, he tried hard. I swear to God, he tried. He threw out everything he had. And you know how it is when you're just sinking? You know, you know you're, you're going down. And you paddle harder, you know, and, and that's, that's what he was, and the more he was sinking, the, the, the worse he got. And I swear to God, that was the most, most absolutely worthless insulting, inappropriate talk I'd ever heard, and I've heard a bunch of them. But I'm sitting there, <laughs> I'm sitting there with my wife. She doesn't hear that from me. I sure don't want her hearing it from some clown in Tennessee. No way, you know, that, that's not what we're there for. And so I didn't like it personally. But now I was mild compared to the two people sitting right in front of me. One of them was the poor person who invited the speakers. <laughs> and all the time he's talking, I could see her just squirming. And the guy sitting behind beside her, I assume was her husband, was it was fascinating. I was watching his neck. You ever seen a thermometer go up, you know? And then you could see the red going up in his neck and his ears started glowing. And uh, and I said, I don't think he's having a good time. And so <laughs> after that guy finally gave up, he didn't quit, he just gave up. And uh, so, and uh, so I saw that lady that was there, and I said, uh, "It looked like your friend you were sitting with didn't really enjoy the meeting tonight." And she said, "Tom, you will never know how absolutely mortified I was at that whole deal." 
Yeah, I have never been more embarrassed in my life. The man sitting with her was her minister at the first meeting of AA he had ever attended. And I'll guarantee you, it was the last meeting of AA he ever attended. You think about that. That's more than just purest virtues. That's a matter of just common sense, of common decency. You know, here's a guy that will impact more alcoholics in the next year than any of us will, will, will come close to doing. And I'll guarantee you that boy would recommend an alcoholic to go to hell quicker than he would AA. See, what a disservice, eh? Where somebody has taken a license to just sort of shoot off at the mouth. And in the course of it, how much damage is done. And so it's not a matter of prudishness or anything like that. You know, my God, I can laugh with folks anyway. But, but when you're speaking as an example of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I think it's awfully important to carry yourself like a good example and not somebody that's just sort of, sort of smoking and joking. I, you run into that a fair amount. I, t- I took a guy to the prison a, a while back. That, matter of fact, that guy I was talking about that was 32 years and, and, uh, and got, it got, it got, it got sober and I'd been wrestling with him. Took him to the prison. Told him he'd go over and speak to the guys. That'd be one way to sort of get his feet wet. So he went in. We meet in a beautiful little chapel. Beautiful little chapel. Great place. And this guy made his talk. And, well, the guy spoke. Let me put it that way. And he laced it with profanity. In a chapel. And we don't do that in that group, you know. And, and, and so, we got, got through. I, it's all I could do to keep from just putting a stage hook on him and bringing him down. But I just hated to do that. It's, I said, well, we can tolerate. So we're riding home, and, uh, he said, well, what do you think? How'd it go? I said, well, it went okay, but you'd have been a whole lot better off had you not put all that profanity in it. And he said, well, I I, I just wanted the guys to know that I was not some big shot, that I was able to operate at the same level. I said, what you just did was insult a whole room full of people, because what you communicated is what you think of them. And what you're doing is taking guys, they got 168 hours in their week just like we do. they got one hour of decency where they can come in and expect to have some sane spiritual stuff. And then somebody come in there and, and contaminate it with that. Now, what, it was a great disservice. And he said, my God, I never thought of that. I said, well, I didn't think you did. You know, but, uh, but you see what I'm talking about. Sometimes in that sort of, just sort of a loosening and, and not thinking about the impact of what you're doing, you're carrying a message, not entertaining. You're carrying a message of hope to people. And, and so you can, just can negate the value so easily like that. And so that's not a matter of being goody two-shoes. It's a matter of being concerned about carrying a message that has meaning and some depth to it. And so so I I think about that. And and the autonomy, I have the right to practice any way I want to, but not at your expense. You've got the right to practice it too, and I can't impose my values on you. And so I like to keep that in mind, in in that autonomy, that... um, And my group is autonomous. You know, we're free to operate as we wish, and so are the groups next door or anywhere else. That uh, Each one of them is a freestanding entity. But we have to be careful, and that's the caution in there, that we not, we're not, we not exaggerate our importance in the scene, that we're a good neighbor, you know, that we want to be a good neighbor in our community. 
We have to be careful of that because, very, very honestly, my group contributes more per quarter than our entire district combined. And, and we don't plan to do that. We're not competing. But we, we contribute what we believe is our fair share. I don't think you would be amazed, but just in case you'd be amazed, I'll tell you that contributions are, are pitiful at best. They're pitiful at best. And uh, it's amazing how many groups contribute zilch. Absolutely nothing. So you got a pretty one-dimensional program, eh? And so, but just because we do that, we don't want to lord that over and basically hold that up as some real banner of achievement or something. We're doing what we believe is right, but we have to be careful that we don't taunt anybody with that. You know that that's just a matter of fact. We always do it. All we got to do is look at the minutes. And so, part of the deal, and the uh, and, and and the fifth one that tells us what our job is. Yeah. Each group has but one primary purpose, carry its message to the alcoholic still suffers. I like to look at it, each member has but one primary purpose. Old Tom I has one primary purpose, and that is to carry whatever message I might have to anybody that will bother to listen. That's my job. That's my primary purpose. I have a lot of other purposes, but that's my primary and that's always on my mind when I get an opportunity. I do it on airplanes, you know. I mean, spend half my life on them. And uh, I take full advantage of the opportunity. I watch to see who's drinking the most. And, uh, <laughs> and if, uh, if you fly first class, it's free hooch, you know, so most everybody will drink it. If, if they don't drink, I'm might, thinking they might be part of my clan. So, so I kind of watch it. But anyway, I, that's, uh, that's my purpose. You know, that's what I'm about. And like any other human, I've got a lot of things that make up my life, but that's, a, that's my primary thing. That's, that's what I'm really about. You know, I've been given a brand-new life, and the only condition is that I share it with the next person. I'm not going to be selfish enough to think that it was intended just for me to enjoy. I think it was given to me so that I could share it with other people. The sixth one is uh, kind of, you don't sound like it, but I'm racing. This is about as fast as I can go. The sixth one is about stuff, you know, that... that uh, Where's the reader? Right here, sixth one. Uh -huh. Problems of money, property, and authority may easily divert us from our primary spiritual aim. We think, therefore, that any considerable property of genuine use to AA should be separately incorporated and managed, thus dividing the material from the spiritual. An AA group as such should never go into business. Secondary aids to AA, such as clubs mm -hmm. or hospitals, which require much property or administration, mm -hmm. ought to be incorporated and so set apart that, if necessary, they can be freely discarded by the mm -hmm. groups. <coughs> Hence, such facilities ought not to use the AA name. Their management should be the sole responsibility of those people who financially support them. Yeah. For clubs, AA managers are usually preferred, but hospitals, as well as other places of recuperation, ought to be well outside AA and medically supervised. While an AA group may cooperate with anyone, such cooperation ought never go so far as affiliation or endorsement, actual or implied. Yeah. An AA group can bind itself to no one. 
Thank you. Now, that's the long form. Long form is considerably short. If, if you do another one, do the short form because it will make the point. And the, uh, but that, that's a, a wordy kind of a, of a statement there. With it. Uh, and all I'm saying is that we've got to be stick to our knit. You know, we don't want to get into owning property prestige because you wind up with it, with it owning us. And, uh, you know, I see a lot of, well, in get, traveling around some, you see an awful lot of people who tap dance around that thing. Yeah, you, you, God knows how many groups I know around the country that, you know, there's, well, I'll, I'll just give you one example of a thousand. That a group down near me, there, you, you, there's some, well, may not, I don't know in Canada, but in, in our country, there's federal money available sometime to enrich sort of community resources and stuff like that. Some, some, some alcoholics are kind of crafty. And so they saw an opportunity to get funding provided they put something else in the same building. And so they started developing what they call a community building. And there's nothing in the world except a subsidized building that's owned by A's and paid for by the, by the government. Well, you couldn't get more out of whack with that tradition, with, with that. Yeah. You know, it takes all of that responsibility away, and we, and we wind up owned by, by officialdom. And so they, they called me and wanted me to come down and uh, speak at the meeting. And uh, I said, okay, I'll come down. They said, yeah, by the way, we want to show you our new club. And I said, well, I'll, I'll take a look at your club, but please don't tell me where you got it. <laughs> because I may get arrested as an accomplice in where you got it. And so I went down and looked at the club, nice thing, but I, I didn't feel good being there. Yeah, because it's just exactly what, what that what that is, where money and property pulls us off course. Let, let me put that in a little bit of a of a human context, you know, I, from a personal aspect. I have to be off. Remember that story I was telling about the job with the Jaguar? Yeah, who you suppose owned who with that Jaguar? Yeah, that, that guy was uh, sold his soul, you know, getting this kind of sort of visual affirmation of himself, I guess. But whatever it was. <clears throat> I'll give you an example of what you can do to a human being. The, uh, I'll give you two real quick ones. The, uh, I had a guy call me one day. He told me I had agreed to speak at his anniversary down in, uh, in, in an adjoining state. And I swear I didn't remember it. And, uh, and uh, so he said, well, you told me you'd come. And I said, did you have a date? He said, no, but you told me. I said, well, my God, man, I didn't give you my calendar and say just pick a date. you got to have a date, you know, and see what we do. So he told me the date, and I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And I've already got a commitment. Now, the commitment I had was to my son. Now, that's a commitment. Yeah, that was a very important commitment. He was in that little old thing, you know, where you build a little old car, kind of a thing. Where the father builds the car and the son takes the credit. You know, that, that's about the way it works. <laughs> and they uh, so had one, and I said, if you make the state finals, I'll go with you. Well, that was my commitment. He made the state finals, and I, t I told him I was going. So I told the guy, now this guy was a kind of a high roller type fellow. He was in the, the, not wrestling cows, he was in the cow selling business and uh, doing rather well. And, uh, so, so I told him, I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I, I, he said, but you said you'd come. I said, yeah, but I didn't give you my life. You know, you pick a day to come, I'll be glad to do it. But otherwise, I can't do it. I've got to commit. And he said, 
Well, let me check it a little bit. Uh, he wouldn't give up. He had to have who he wanted when he wanted them. And so he called me back in a little while. And he said, can you be, at, and I told him, I said, I, I can't be back before 6 in the evening because I've got to travel to do. He said, can you be at the Southern Pines Airport at 6 p.m.? I said, yeah, I can. He said, great. Come on down and be ready to travel because we're going down to, to, to that state. <laughs> this was before 9-11. And uh, I got to the airport, of course, small airport. Everybody knows everybody. And so when I got there, they didn't have all this security like we do now. And they already had the door open. It looked like they were escorting the president to the helicopter. You know, they, they were there. I'm running through there to get to the helicopter. That's what he's got parked as a helicopter, running. I said, my God, I didn't sign up for this kind of stuff. Man, I'm supposed to just be sober and happy. I'm not supposed to be riding that stupid thing. So I, so I got on it and I rattled all the way to, to, down in the, the lower in South Carolina. Thought we'd never get there. It was like riding a pogo stick, for God's sake. I mean, just uh, when, when I got, thank you so much. I, <laughs> well, we're talking about this being sacrificed and giving stuff. <laughs> you didn't hear that part. <laughs> yeah, but we got down there. When I got off that thing, I was shaking. I got right straight to the podium, and, and I was shaking the podium. And I still had got thing. I got through with it. And next morning, we, I'm headed back. So we go back and get the helicopter, took off, and all at once he banged down on the ground. I said, why'd you slam dunk this thing? He said, I didn't slam dunk it. We crashed. I said, God, no, man. I think I'm ever going to get out of here. So he borrowed another plane. Flew me, and I finally got there. When he got off, he handed me an envelope, and I said, what's that? He said, just a thank you card. We appreciate you coming down. I said, okay, fine. Put it in my pocket, got home, opened it up, had a lot of money in it. So I called him immediately, and I said, big guy, you just made a bad mistake. He, he said, what? I said, you put a bunch of money in my pocket. We don't do that. He said, no, no, no. He said, that's all right. We can afford that thing. That's what we want to do. And I said, no, we don't do that. I'm not a hooker. I'm not for sale. I don't rent out. You know, that's not what this is about. I said, don't you tell me where to send this back, and don't you ever do that to anybody else in AA, me especially. Because what he's doing, if I'd have taken that, I would have been for sale. And that's not what we do. We give it away. You know, we, don't, we don't sell it, for God's sakes. And uh, that guy, and, and by the way, that was his third anniversary. He had to have it his way. And unfortunately, it was his last anniversary because he died drunk for shortly after that. And, and well, and it stood to reason you know, that you can't have it on those terms. You know. I'll tell you one other one that uh, really brought it home to me was uh, <clears throat> I had a 12-step call one night, and it was to the high-rent district. I live right next door to a place called Pinehurst, which is our pebble beach. Uh, it's a real fancy golf resort, and I knew the area. And uh, so he called me, and he lived on Millionaire Row. And so I knew I was good and into the high rent. Got a guy sponsored to come on go with me. So went in. And just tell you what money will do. The, uh, he, he, he answered the door, and he had on a smoking jacket. I'd never seen one except in the movies. <laughs> and he's wearing a smoking jacket. And I said, well, this is going to be good. Now, I said, go ahead. He, he got Sinatra playing on the sound system. And uh, 
He said, he, he said, you want me to turn it off? I said, no, I like old blue eyes. Just let him finish that song. And he fi- finished it and uh, cut it off. And he said, uh, he was ready. He said, oh, well, I'm looking at you just because you read. I'm punishing you for <laughs> reading, reading that long for him. He had, and he, uh, he said, would you like me to tell you about myself? I said, yeah, that'd be interesting. I'd love to hear it. He said, well, I'll tell you this. The last person, he said, I just got out of treatment just a while back. They ripped me off for $30,000. I said, well, sometimes it's expensive. And he said, the last guy that did what you and this fellow are doing ripped me off for $300,000. I said, well, life's tough. And, uh, and and then there's one other one he mentioned that was just an outlandish kind of a thing. Well, he'd already told me enough. You know, I understood what he was talking about. You know, that this was a guy. Now, he was the owner of an international corporation. He was not a high roller. He was a mega roller. And and so, so he's telling me all of this stuff that uh, that that he had... Every time he mentioned it, he mentioned a rip-off that came with it, you know, that, 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 that money just screwed up whatever the transaction was. And so, and he said, he said, you can tell I'm not a rookie. I've been through this before. And he, he said, I've talked to every expert in the United States and some other countries. What do you suppose you can tell me that I don't already know? And I said, well, probably nothing. I said, but let me just tell you one thing that I want you to know. Me and this fellow wouldn't sell you 30 minutes of our time for $300,000. It ain't for sale, buddy. It ain't for sale. And that old boy just quietened right down, right down. That somehow you're given what you need to say. That, man, you don't buy this. It ain't for sale. You've got you to give up for it to happen. And from that point on, we, we had a pretty doggone good session. He wound up coming into the program. He died 11 years later with complete sobriety. But see what, see what I'm talking about, what money can do. This guy had himself imprisoned in a mansion with, with God, it was, a, it was a pitiful thing. I ran into him in the, the, DFW, the Dallas airport one time. I'm going to jockstrap Arkansas or somewhere <laughs> to, to tote the message and do God's work. And I said, where are you guys going? Him and his wife. He said, well, we thought we'd go down to Acapulco for a few days. And I, I said, you poor baby. I don't know how in the world you stand that. <laughs> but it was just, it's just great. You know, it, to me, it makes the point that, that you know, when you get money in it, what you do is screw it up. And you become owned by that. You know, he's imprisoned with his own richness. And, and it, 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 what, a, what a tragic thing to see that happen. And, and it can happen so easily, so easily, when we start getting that mixed up and we get to thinking that we can buy our way through. And because we've got a few bucks, we can buy a little better, better piece of cake or something. And so it, 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 I could give you 50 examples of that kind of thing, but you, you see the point, that when we get owning buildings, the buildings own us. If you go down, I'm far enough away that I can say this without fear of retaliation. Texas is, is really, really, really famous for this thing. Every little old town's got a building, either that they own or it's one that they rent or, or something there. 
And typically, not only in Texas, but about anywhere, where you see where people have got a building, you'll wind up having about 30 meetings a week. What do you think their primary purpose is? You better believe it. You better believe it. Because when you start paying rent for downtown property, it takes a whole bunch of collections to do that. Your primary purpose gets totally shifted out of whack, eh? And so, anyway, that, that whole business of, of what can happen, where we own stuff, and instead of us, we own it, it owns us. You've seen it. My God, you've seen it. Where people are just identified by what they have instead of who they are. And so that's what can so easily happen to us where we get carried away with that. We're going to impress somebody so much that we lose our, our way in the process. Seven is the, uh, the antithesis of that. It's about being self-supporting. That each group should be self-supporting except in fully self-supporting. What? Every group ought to be fully self-supporting. That's the exception. I'm brain dead here. I think Canada got to me or something. But that's, uh, yeah, except matters. You know, you know, what that means to me, and I hopefully to you, is that when I go into an AA meeting, I want to, joke. <laughs> I, I want to contribute at least as much as I consume. That's my criteria. You know, that if I'm going to drink some coffee, I know what coffee costs. If I enjoy the air conditioning, I know what air conditioning costs. We all do. And so I want to just sort of do a rough calculation and make sure that I pay my proportionate share. Now, that's a guess, of course. But the spirit of it is that I don't want to freeload. I don't want somebody else to have to pay my weight. You know, I want to carry my weight and be self-supporting. And uh, the uh, not everybody can. Sometimes you have to contribute just by, by pitching in and helping with the work. There are many ways to contribute. Money's not the only way. But as long as I start pay, paying my way, then I'm not going to feel like I'm still hoodwinking people, like I made a career of doing. That I, I carry my way. I want to take my, my, my fair share of that. So that whole business of self-support is so critical. We lose a lot of people over getting tangled up with money matters. And so... That, that tradition is pretty important. Eight is about kind of following up on that business that you don't sell it. That uh, number eight, that short form on yeah. Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but as service centers may employ special workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That is basically saying that we don't hire out, just like I was telling that guy. <laughs> but it's, it's just a tricky thing, you know, that... Like a lot of people who get into recovery wind up working in the treatment field and, and it can be, it can do good work. It's tricky work. It is really tricky work because it's, what the difficulty is, is this thing of separating one from the other. I had a woman call me that, I mean, I'd known her for years, but we weren't close friends or anything. She called me and asked, if, asked me to go to lunch with her. On her. Uh, well, I couldn't turn that down. You know, so I want her to be self-supporting. <laughs> so, so I went. And, uh, and I knew she had something on her mind. You know, she wouldn't have called me otherwise. So I went over and she, uh, you know, you tell people got something on her mind. She said, she said, Tom, you're real, still real active in AA, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I'm still active. My God, yes. And I said, aren't you? Like I didn't know. You know, she hadn't been to a meeting for probably 15 years. 
I said, aren't you? And she said, well, no. And I said, why not? She said, and this is a sad comment. She said, I gave at the office. How far off base could you get? You don't give at the office. You sell at the office. You don't give. And, uh, I mean, you may give a little labor, but you get well compensated for it as a rule. And she was well compensated. But see what it does, it takes away that sense of, of really being somebody who is a genuine member of AA and gets sold out for that. And, and a lot of people do do that thing of uh, just like I sponsor a number of people who, who work in, in the treatment field. And there are two basic things I look for with people who work in the treatment field. One is if they get up to speak and they make a treatment lecture. And you can tell the difference. You, you don't need anybody to tell you what it is. You'll, you'll recognize it immediately. And when I hear that, if it's somebody I, that I sponsor, we're going to have a talk. <laughs> we're going to have a talk. Or at a, at a discussion where they get into counseling instead of sharing. Yeah. And those are the kind of things that will just sort of erode your integrity in the field. You know? So it's a, it's a tricky kind of a deal. It's sometimes pretty subtle, too. I, I had a guy call me. How are we doing tonight? I never have changed my clock. Well, all right, so we are. Right, well, I'm hurrying. I'm hurrying. I'm, hey, God knows I keep forgetting about that. Jesus, you guys are rich, man. You got clocks everywhere. I got. I had a guy that was an attorney that I'd worked with a lot, trying to work, trying to help him, you know. And he was just a hard-headed, meathead guy. Uh, he was a, a stunk, He was a, a real good athlete. He played uh, football at Duke University. And baseball. He holds the all-time Atlantic, you could look it up if you want to, but holds the all-time Atlantic Coast Conference record for times at bat without a strikeout. That is a typical kind of athlete, a real hard-driving athlete, a aggressive sort of guy. I, I intervened on him personally one time, went into his office and just took him out. And I, I said, that sucker's liable to knock me out before I get out of there, but I'm going anyway. So I went in there and worked on him. Didn't work. Kept me busy. It kept me off the street while I was wrestling with him. And uh, so I had a history with him. Been sober a few times. And I got a phone call for him one day. I know it was a hard phone call for him to make. And he said, Tom, I need a little help. And that was hard for him to say. I need a little help. And I said, and what might that be? And he said, well, I was in your town a while back. And I jumped town with a hotel bill unpaid. And he said, those cheapskates are going to prosecute me, and I'm going to have to go to court, and they're going to put me in jail. I said, well, it ain't as bad as it sounds. You know, I've been there myself. <laughs> but, but there was no sale. He said, no, man, I can't go down. I'm a lawyer. They'll kill me. And, and so I, I said, where is it? He told me. I said, well, okay, I'll take care of it. And so I did. I went over. He said, now, i got to have a receipt, because if I don't have a receipt, man, I'm gone. So I said, okay, I'll get it to you. So I went over, paid the bill, and got that. And he said, I will pay you back, because I'm selling my car, and as soon as I get that money, you'll be paid back. I said, don't worry about it, for God's sakes, man, you're worth a few bucks. And so don't worry about it. I'm not. And uh, he said, no, I want to pay you. I said, well, fine. So a little later... Now, now, now listen to the subtlety of this. This is what a crafty lawyer will do. He sent me a check for the amount plus five dollars. 
Is that cagey or what? You know a better way to negate a gift? That's like tipping a waiter. <laughs> and I, I, I very carefully placed that back in the envelope and said, you're probably a good lawyer, but your math stinks. <laughs> Do something appropriate with that. You know, so I said it back. But you see, a simple little thing like that, eh? And he probably didn't think about that, but that would negate the value. That way he could push it off. It doesn't say, hey, he's not caring about a guy like me. But he couldn't say that, you know, that, that I wouldn't, I'm, if I'm for sale, it's surely not for five dollars. And <laughs> so, but anyway, just a sneaky thing about, about that whole business. And like that guy that, the one I was telling with the helicopter. You know, had I taken that money, that would have paid for everything. You know, that would have been, he didn't have any obligation, no appreciation to anybody. He'd hired somebody to come in and be an out-of-town entertainer. And uh, so sne- just sneaky kind of stuff like that. And so that thing of being careful, if I take one cent for anything I do, I'm a professional. I may be underpaid, but I'm a professional if I take any money for anything I do at AA. That's tricky because, like, you know, I travel a great deal, and, and just like coming here. There, there's considerable expense to fly some drunk, half, uh, not halfway, all the way across the country, particularly into Vancouver. Man, they think this is precious land, and they have a bonus payment due for landing on the cherry soil. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's, it's a, a lot of it. And I have to be careful with that, you know, that, that I, I take expense, I take, I, I, if I didn't take ex, uh, reimbursement for expenditures, I would be sponsoring the workshop. And that's a little out of whack, you know. And so it's just, that's what we do. We pay our way, you know, with whatever it takes. And, uh, and that, that can be a tricky kind of a train sometimes. And so that whole business of, 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 of money and how we handle it, Oh, I wanted to tell you one other thing. If I just jump back for a minute to that seven, I'll tell you just one one little little quick story on that thing uh, about how valuable it, it is. I, you know, I mentioned that that group I sponsored in the prison. When we started to set that group up, we had a meeting with the warden and all the staff there, just sort of going over the ground rules, what we're going to do. And in the course of it, I, I said, we would like for this group to be self-supporting as much as possible, meaning we don't want anything from the state provided to that group. We want that to be a group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the warden said, he, we, we knew each other, he said, Tom, you know these guys don't have any money. I said, don't kid yourself, man. Some of them got more money than me and you put together. But now most of them don't. That's right. We, most don't. I said, but do you? can you imagine how much dignity you can buy for 50 cents if that's about all, <clears throat> if that's about all you have? He, he was just quiet for a minute. He said, I see what you mean. So that, right today, that, that group of guys, that's probably the most, the, the thing they have the greatest pride in is the fact they're self-supporting. We do a little, a little program for new arrivals where some guys from the group go and tell them about the group. One of the things they always say, at the end of our meetings, we have, we have refreshments. We'll have coffee and pop, stuff like that. And they always say, and you can believe this prison and this state has absolutely nothing to do with providing that. 
We buy that stuff. We're self-supporting. And it's great to see them hustling. <laughs> they start trying to beat something out of people. Great to see. But what they're doing is learning the principles. Eh? They're learning the principles in that. And uh, so, and, and the other story, I just mentioned that, but no extra charge, but I'm going to throw in one more. <laughs> I, was in, uh, I was out in California. A guy called me. From I didn't know him, but he called me from the, somewhere out on the coast, and he wanted me to come to a town and to speak to a gathering of the A's in three cities. And I, and I said, that's fine with me. I, I'll be glad to do it. The date's open, and I'll be glad to do it. And uh, he said, now, while you're here, we would also like for you to speak at a penitentiary. And I said, I'll be glad to do it. And I said, I hate to tell you, but uh, that'll probably be the, the, the feature for me. <laughs> he said, well, me too, but we won't announce that. We'll just have the regular meeting. So I went over to that. Well, I got a deal in the mail that, that was from the federal penitentiary at, at, at that place in California. And I opened the letter, and I couldn't figure out why they were writing to me. You know, maybe clearance or whatever. You know, I didn't know what, but I opened it up. And there were, I guess you call it a, a voucher or something. It was a, a deal saying, it, it named a figure and said, expenses for a speaker. I took a look at that thing. I said, come on, man, you got to be kidding me. And so I called the guy, and I said, look, buddy, it's been a mistake. And uh, I said, What's, he's what? And I said, well, I just got this thing from the penitentiary saying that that was a, they had a voucher saying that they were they were going to pay expensive for a speaker. I said that's not the way we do it. He said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we do it like that all the time." I said, "No, you don't. You used to do it like that. You know, you don't do it like 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 that with me. That deal's over." And uh, and he was we had an interesting conversation. We we had a lot long conversation about the seventh tradition. He pleaded ignorance. I don't think he was quite as ignorant as ignorant as he claimed to be, but he was pretty ignorant. And uh, so, we, so we worked it out. And I worked out some way to get on an airplane with no wings or something to fly out there. It was, it was a talk about a jail cheapo. But we went. And uh, it, it, it was okay, but it had a little bit of a stressful feel to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a climate. You can tell when you walk in. Nobody has to tell you. But it just didn't feel comfortable. And uh, so we got, we got her done. And about a year later, he called me and he said, Now, Tom, listen to me before you say anything. He said, we want you to come back out here and do a rerun. You didn't do it right the first time. And so they want you to come back out. And he said, now we've got it right. We have got this thing fixed. I said, tell me about it. So he told me what, what they were doing. And, and I'll tell you that they did do it right. And what they did was, it's what, what I wanted to just show you, that it's, it's about far more than money. It's about a lot more than money. And, and, but, and what happened, when I, I, I take this with me when I'm going to be even touching on traditions, because this, this was something that had great value to me. That first time I went out there, it was okay, but it was routine. You know what I mean? It's just sort of a... Sort of just a routine little deal. The next time I went out, it was a totally different different place there. He he sent me this. If any of you have ever been around institutions, 
This is called a withdrawal sheet. And what they did at the federal penitentiary was circulate a withdrawal sheet, and every member of the group who wanted to contribute to the expenses of, of the, what we were doing signed up in different amounts. Some of them wrote bad checks. <laughs> Believe it or not, it made a contribution and had no money. <laughs> but their tent was good. Their bank account wasn't very good. But, but they, 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 they paid. And it was light years different, eh? You know, these, I was the guest of those people. You know, I wasn't some guy being shipped in here to preach to them. I was a guy they, that they, and what happened, the three towns took care of the air travel, and the guys in the joint took care of the ground expenses of the hotel, a meal, whatever expenses we had. The guys took care of that. That's self-support. You know, and, and that thing of just giving a welfare state, you know, and it taking care of everything, it, it can be a great disservice, you know. And I just wanted to share that one with you. That was one of the real payoffs for holding the ground and taking a look at that. Uh, so I keep it. And there's that voucher they sent me. <laughs> anyway, I don't even want to look at it. But something else, really, really, uh, tradition truly are powerful. And then the uh, ninth one is about bosses and stuff. Yeah. AA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, a while ago when we were doing the thing here, somebody asked people to identify that had helped put this on. You know, you know that's leadership. You know, the, these things don't just happen spontaneously. It does. It just doesn't work that way. Believe me, if you haven't been involved, and 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 so somebody has to step forward, accept responsibility, and take care of business. And that way, stuff happens. If without leadership, what you got is a crowd. With leadership, you can have an organized kind of a function that'll come off well, and nobody has to go to jail as a rule. As a rule, sometimes, once in a while. If they do, we've decided it's Alex that has to go. Yeah. <laughs> we love him. <laughs> and so it, it, the same thing in the program, that, that, that we don't have, we don't have leadership per se, but we have service committees and, 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 and these things directly responsible to those they serve. It's just like I said about my group. We have every service that's done in Alcoholics Anonymous done in our group. And they're responsible. Each one of these is an autonomous function in our group. They need no, like I'm on the corrections committee and also on the program committee, which plans the meetings ahead and all that kind of stuff, the speakers and all that. And, and those committees function autonomously. They elect their own leadership. They make all their decisions. They don't need approval from the larger group for anything unless they need something beyond their means, you know. And if they need some money or something, they'll bring it to the business meeting and, and we'll take care of it. But that, that's what that's about is, you know, that that group has the autonomy to operate in, ter- in, in, in the interest of our common welfare. And, and so it's the same at any level that we service committees like our intergroup office. You know, this kind of a thing can come under that, uh, that umbrella where people are, they're, they're hired, they're hired employees, but they, they're hired at the same rate you would that if you had to hire somebody else. And so it's done that way. Our folk in the general service office. Sometimes we forget 
And when we're complaining about something in AA, we'll look at what they're doing in New York. They're not doing anything in New York. What they're doing in New York is serving as our staff. That's what they do. And each one of them has a desk where they're responsible for a particular function. And, and so that's what they do. They're not doing 12-step work. What they're doing are things that make the 12-step work, that makes the 12-step work. I'll give you a quick example on that. I got a call from a guy up there one day, and he asked me if I would work with a guy in Kenya and, and I, over in Africa. And I said, what do you mean? I, I said, now, if you're talking about going to Kenya, I'm not going to Kenya. If <laughs> people shoot a lot over there, so I ain't going. He said, you don't have to do it. You can do it electronically, that he's good on email. He speaks better English than you, but you ain't saying much. And so, and I said, okay, we'll tackle it. And, and this guy, I learned more about Kenya than I really wanted to know. But you know, what I found out is that Kenya has 30 million people. Two million of them live in Nairobi. 28 million live in God knows where, the rest of Kenya. And to round them up, it would take an awfully big roundup. And so he's concentrated in Nairobi, period. And, and so this fella, Michael's his name, is a marvelous fella. And, and, and so he was, he had some, some grit and some ambition. He wanted to get the program out. He wanted to do something in the correctional facility. He had a lot of interest in that. So he had a lot of folks locked up. He wanted to do something. So I had the real pleasure of helping that guy draft a plan. Yeah, when you start, it's amazing what you run into. When you start trying to draft a plan in a country where the average family lives on less than a dollar a day, less than a dollar a day. They're not going to have a lot to put into the basket. They, they're not. They're going to have very little. So they had problems, you know. And so I, I, I told him. I said, "Tell me about your place." He said, "Ask me some questions. It'll make it a little easier." So I asked him the, ob the obvious questions to me. You know, where are the facilities? How far you got to travel to get there? What kind of resources do you have? Do you have any connections with the people? What about transportation? Do you have any cars? You know, do you, do you, money. You know, stuff like that. I mean, just natural, logical information to see if you're going to start launching a plan. That's where I found out about the demographics of Kenya and, and the economic status. So it's a real challenge. And what we wound up doing is saying, you're going to have to carpool. If you only got one car, let's pitch in. Everybody get five people, put them in the car. Everybody put in a little something that you might be able to drive. You know, it had to steal tires, too. They didn't have any tires. So anyway, it was an interesting challenge. But that's what our office does, eh? I did the 12-step work, but somebody in the office that we employ to handle international affairs is the one who answered the phone and talked to Michael and said, you know, they don't do service at the general service office. What they do is the administrative work so that that could get funneled to the right person. And they, <laughs> I was the guy with the short stick, so I, I got it. And, and what a great experience. That, uh, I went over it, and one of the things, that there's a little bit of a language problem. He... Uh, he, he, Michael wanted to do some public, I, I told him, I said, you need to do some public information and CPC work, like getting a cooperative relationship, you know, and talking with folks and getting some interest. Well, he didn't quite understand what that meant, so he sent me a picture, big blown up picture, had 600 uh, fellas sitting squatted on the yard of the prison. And Michael is up on some big platform making a speech. He thought the information was to tell the inmates. I said, no, no, you got to get the people who run the place here to have a little knowledge about the thing. So great fun working with that. 
And, and so that's, you know, it's what happens you know, where our staff can do a good job and then they'll get one of us to provide the service. That's exactly the way it's supposed to work. That's why we got people like And you know, sometimes we, we criticize the general service for what they do, but they, they're our staff. And what they do is provide the services we employ them to do. And so that's just kind of an important thing to me to know about tradition. So 10 is... Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. <coughs> AA name will never be drawn into public mm-hmm. yeah. let, let me refer to something that came up in the questions. It says, people were talking about relationships of all kinds. You know, and, and to me, this has an awful lot to do with, with relationships. This whole business about you know, that we have no opinion on outside issues. I, I'm a little generous with that thing, and and I, I like to, to to think of outside issues are things that are none of my business, none of my business within the fellowship. That you probably don't have this in Vancouver, but in some places in our country, like my, my area, we have the problem of real gossip, with gossip, and that's all you can call it. <laughs> and gossip is a dangerous thing. I have seen suicides as a result of gossip, where somebody's casually talking about stuff they got no business talking about. And and this 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 notion is more than a notion, it's an old principle that is often abused. That what happens in AA stays in AA. What you hear in AA stays in AA. It is not for street corner conversation. And to me, that's what this kind of thing means in, in, in that tradition, is that, that it means more than just how we communicate with the world. It's how we honor and respect each other's privacy. So I think gossip is very much a part of what's covered in that, in that tradition. That, and, and, and then opinion, the other is kind of obvious, but about having opinions on outside issues. And, uh, and, and so gossip is an outside issue. That's the reason I bring that one up, and a dangerous one, a very dangerous one. Like any citizen, you know, I have concerns that I, that I, that I, that I, I want to deal with. But I've got to be careful that I speak as an individual and not represent myself as speaking on behalf of AA. I, I, one little illustration is that I, had a, I got really angry with our governor one, one time. Yeah, I know y'all don't ever get elected, get angry at your elected official, but <laughs> I was just mad, yeah, because he, he just did some dumb stuff that in a way impacted on AA. And, and, and I, I flat didn't like it. And I, I not only, I supported this dude. I gave him money because I thought he was a good man. I was wrong. But, but he probably is a good man, but not in that job. And so he, he did some stuff that I just flat did, just could not accept. So I wrote him a nice little letter that I guarantee he didn't show to his mama. And, uh, and uh, he answered it. No secretary would write a, a, a memo as, as ugly as that one. Not the wording, but the composition. That was an amateur. Uh, well, I had to be very careful. That while it related to dealing with alcoholics, you know, I had to be very careful that I didn't give any kind of insinuation that I was speaking on behalf of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm speaking as a as a as a as a taxpaying citizen, as somebody who voted him for him on the belief that he would do something worthwhile, 
And, uh, but it had to be careful with that. We had to be very careful that I simply don't have the right to speak on behalf of anybody else. And just because I feel strongly about it doesn't mean other people do. I'll tell you one other place that, uh, that I run into that a lot. I do a session at a law school, usually once a year, that's with third-year law students. They're getting ready to go, go practice, and they want to bring somebody in to talk about dealing with alcoholics in the court system, what attorneys can do. To, and so I go down and do that. Invariably, invariably, because you've seen I kind of like interactive stuff. Invariably, they'll ask me my position on legalizing marijuana, for example. Well, now I'm down there with full identification as an AA member. And as an AA member, I have absolutely no position on that. So I refuse to answer it. And they beat on me hard, you know, trying to get me. But, but you see what the caution is. Because if I do that, in their minds, I'm speaking on behalf of our fellowship. And we don't have a position on that. And so I have to be very, very careful when I'm doing that thing. And you'll probably run into the same thing if you don't already. When you go out, just let people assume that you're speaking on behalf of the fellowship. And so it's a tricky kind of an area. And so that tend is that thing about operating within you know, the context of who we are and what we're about. And have to be careful with that step. Yeah. Eleven. Uh, public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion, meaning you always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I, the, uh, yeah, I think I mentioned in one of the earlier sessions that our program of attraction is us. <laughs> we are the program of attraction. It's not, I mean, we do ads and all that kind of stuff, but I don't think that's the program of attraction. I think we attract people by the way we handle ourselves. Or we repel people by the way we handle ourselves. And we can do either one. We're quite capable of it. And a lot of times then when we get casual and we get relaxed and sometimes we'll forget that we've got people who are keenly aware of who we are. And, uh, and oftentimes, uh, I know at one time I had one of my bosses, a secretary of correction, that, that, and I were meeting to, in a corrections workshop and uh, we went over and had dinner, and, I, and uh, the boss was really kind of a stern old dude, but he was in a jocular mood, and we were having, the manager came over and told me, he said, we're going to have to close this down a little bit over here. God knows you're running our customers off. Well, we weren't exactly a sterling example of decorum, you know, that, that night. I wasn't real proud of that. And uh, I'll tell you one time when I really had this brought home to me in a positive way. I had a bunch of guys that uh, we were getting ready to put on a workshop in a district meeting. And, and so we met at, 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 in the lobby of a hotel where one of our folks was staying, and we were meeting. Now, we had about a half dozen people, you know, with me and five other people. We were going to be doing a panel. So we were going over this thing, getting our game plan together, what we were going to do and how we were going to do it and all that kind of stuff. And I, was, I paid no attention, and I don't think anybody else did in our bunch, to anything going on in the lobby. I had noticed at the next table, this is a good, good example. I noticed at the next table a, a white-haired couple, an older couple, were sitting there, and I noticed they kept cutting a look over there once in a while. So they got up, went over, checked out, and came back by, and they stopped at the table 
And the lady was the bolder of the two. She said, we didn't intend to eavesdrop on what you guys are doing, but we were just curious, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, well, we're, we're going to be putting, putting over the panel this afternoon, and we're, we're sort of getting it together. And she said, oh, what's the panel about? It's about service. And she said, well, that's nice. In relation to what? And I said, Alcoholics Anonymous. And she and her, and her husband finally spoke up and said, boy, isn't that great? Yeah. And she said, the reason we noticed that, we are both people who have been highly engaged in all kinds of circles. You guys were the most intensely focused people either of us had ever seen. Now, that was a shining moment for Alcoholics Anonymous. Suppose we'd have been there just barking out dirty jokes and stuff like that. And that you know, wouldn't have been much of a program of attraction, eh? Yeah, but I'll guarantee you, either one of those old folks would send their grandchildren today eh, without hesitation. And so that's, that's why I think it's just a matter, I don't think you have to be, be, be paranoid about stuff, but just a matter of being conscious that, particularly in small towns, people know you. Yeah, I mean, they know who you are. And then when they see that, you're, we're going to be an example, good or bad. We'll be one or the other. We can't be neutral. And so it, it is a, a, an important thing in that program of attraction. That we uh, that we uh, be, be very careful about you know how we handle ourselves when we're dealing with people to do it in an appropriate kind of way to demonstrate who you know the, the, the quality and integrity of what we're about and so we we, we got a lot that you got a lot of stuff at a program I won't go into a bunch of it but there's we get a lot of notoriety on on, on television. And, and, and unfortunately, a lot of it creates a lot of dismay for me because, you know, what's happened is that Alcoholics Anonymous, rather than public information, I never thought I'd see the day, but all too often Alcoholics Anonymous becomes the butt of jokes in late-night comedy. Uh, and it's a tragic thing, you know, that it's not their fault. You know, I mean, we, it's up to us to help people understand differently than that. So, so we, we, we sort of get what we fail to sow in a, in, in a, in a way. But, but those are not things that attract people. But they're things that just happen. And, and so you know, I hate to see that happen. You get stuff in, in, in papers that um, we, we had a thing, and I know you have them here. In fact, you just had something in this city that's absolutely heartbreaking <laughs> that had to do in a different venue, but it had to do with identifying people in ways that are tremendously injurious and just happen right not far from where we sit. And so it's not isolated, you know, this kind of thing. Whether that related to anybody with alcoholism or whatever, I don't know. I haven't read it yet, but I just heard it. And we had a deal in North Carolina where boy meets girl on AA campus, and that's not newsworthy. It happens. And unfortunately, it doesn't always work out. And you had a case where a, a guy and a girl, this is what wound up in the paper, had apparently gotten involved and they, they went out somewhere and the guy murdered the girl and crushed her head with a rock. A, a brutal, well, there's no such thing as a gentle murder, but, but that was a brutal kind of a, a, a cold-hearted kind of a thing. Well, the newspaper just absolutely blasted that as they would. That's their job, for God's sakes. That's what they're paid. That's what they're paid for. They, the public has a right to know. 
And so they reported it, and it made it sound like that they met in AA and, and the scheme was hatched there that culminated with that. Now, I, I was really troubled about that, troubled a great deal, because it, what an image, eh? What an image. Now, how do you deal with it? Yeah. And, and I was racking my brain trying to figure out because you, you, what we have to recognize is, particularly when you're dealing with outside agencies, is that writers and editors, when they're going through journalism school, they learn nothing about anonymity in AA. It's not taught. So if we want them to understand that, it's us who has to carry that message, not depend on somebody else, because it simply won't happen. And uh, so I was trying to figure out what to do. Like, writing a, an angry letter about that would have been adding coal to the fire. It would not have been, been an effective thing. And I just felt compelled to do something. And, and, but what could you do? Attack somebody for doing their job? I mean, they have to report this stuff as factually as they can. And, and so I was sweating over it, and about two weeks later, a writer on that same paper wrote an extremely sensitive article. It wasn't contradicting the other article, but he wrote a very sensitive article about a thing. I wrote a letter of commendation to that writer. <laughs> Didn't mention the other letter, <laughs> but gave the commendation for the proper reporting. You know? And in that way, may raise the level of sensitivity. But, but it's all, all we could do. I mean, you couldn't attack people for doing what they have to do. And, and you know, you know, if you have concerns about those kind of things, you know, it's in our court. You know, to, to how do we get people to be more sensitive to that kind of stuff? Asking them is one simple way to do that. And uh, so television people, all that kind of stuff, those are the public that we need to inform and help them understand the criticality of anonymity in, 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 in early recovery. Very critically important. But they don't know it if we don't bother to tell them. I had a group of guys, I was doing a workshop in California with a bunch of old goats. I mean, they were old. And uh, we were up on, a, up on a piece of a mountain. And there's four guys came in from California. And they, they were just young guys out trying to have a good time. They were going up and down the coast harassing people. And they, it was harmless, you know. They, they were just out on the lark. And so they heard there were some old goats up on the mountain. They were hey, hey guys. They heard there were some old goats up there. And so here they came. And they were just, just sort of goofing around. Eh? They, they were just trying to have a little fun. So they came in, and they kept throwing out a little stuff there, you know, trying to get a little humor, and they, all they hit was the stone walls. You know, we, we weren't buying any of that. So they finally came up, gave up on, you know, trying to turn it into a party, and because we weren't going to do that. You know, we, I mean, it's fine for you to have fun, but not at our expense. You know, we got work to do. And uh, so they gave up on that. And then one of the guys spoke up. They were all from Hollywood. And he said, said, we'd really like to get into the discussion. He said, we've got an enormous problem, and everybody here knows it, uh, that our people who are well-known celebrities are always in the press and on television exposing everything about their, their problems with alcohol, their attempt to do somebody coming out of treatment. And... Uh, and, and, and the, sort of the spokesman of the group said, what can we do about it? And uh, I said, well, 
you, you may be able to do something. I said, but you know, what? I said, let me just ask you a question. Answer your question with a question. When was the last time anybody in Hollywood, California, met with the editor of, pay, of the paper and talked about the sensitivity of, of anonymity for people in early recovery? Of course, you know the answer. Yeah, it was just a blank look. And okay, there, there's, there's your point of action. If you care about that and you want something done, bother to go and have a talk with the editor, the manager, or whoever, and explain what this is. People don't know that. They don't know it. And so if we don't bother to let them know, who is? So I think this whole business of, of your, how you deal with that thing and, and let this program of attraction not turn into some sick joke on television. And, but that's us. And if we don't care, it'll keep happening. But I think it's very much the ball's in our court on that kind of thing. So that, to me, I mean, that's kind of a weak-sounding tradition. But when you think about it in that regard, an awful lot of people die trying to get in these doors. And they wind up in this just sort of bouncing ball thing. Yeah. So it's a pretty important kind of thing, I think, yeah. And well, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. Ever reminding us that anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. Every one of them about anonymity. That you notice he didn't put the mic over here till I'm just about finished. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to amen is all he wants over here. That's the, but that that that's what about anonymity. The uh, and and yeah, it, it, the real truth is that uh, that that twelfth tradition is is not so much about secrecy; it's about humility. You know, so that we don't take a lot of credit for what we do. We don't need a lot of recognition. That's that's real the real spirit of what that's about. I, a guy explained it one time in a, in a meeting I was in. He said, "Humility is doing something for somebody and not letting them know it." That's a big test too. It is a big test to do something and don't let them find out about it. That, that's what the humility and anonymity is about, is, is getting down to that. And personally, that, you know, I, I really believe that anonymity is, is, is something that we, we, we really bounce around in all kinds of directions. A, a personal kind of example. I've, as you've gathered, I, I travel a lot. A lot. I, I fly more than pilots do. And <laughs> my wife is thrilled about it, too, I can tell you. I, I don't know where we're going to get divorced. But if she has to go to Saskatchewan, she's going to stay with me. <laughs> so for years on planes, you know how it is. You sit down with somebody and you start talking. What's your dog's name and where'd your kids go to school and all this kind of stuff. Just chit-chat. Yeah. And for many, many years... People would, you know, obviously we're flying to Vancouver, you know, but say, where are you going? I said, well, I thought I might go to Vancouver since that's where the plane's going. And so, but, you know, just, just brilliant question like that. And, uh, and then nearly always, for many years, the way I handle it is say, what are you going to do in Vancouver? And, uh, for years, I, I wouldn't lie. I would just sort of put a little smoke screen on it. You know, I'd, I'd say, oh, I'm going there to a retreat, you know. And, oh, is that right? What's it about? 
I said, oh, it's about troubled families and individuals and problems. You know, and I just sort of, sort of fog it that way, you know. And it dawned on me one time, what on earth am I doing for God's sakes? You know, I'm up here in a, in a, in a, in a metal pipe blasting through the air, you know, 30, 40,000 feet in the air. Don't tell anybody, you know. <laughs> God Almighty, what has that got to do with anonymity, for God's sake? You know, that is the dumbest thing. And when it finally dawned on me, uh, what are you doing, my friend? That's stupid. You know, it's either fear or pride. That's all. That's all. Either fear or pride. And so I, I thought that about that, and I said, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> and I haven't. I tell you. If, 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 if people want to know where I'm going, I'll tell them. And if they want to know what I'm doing, I'll tell them. Yeah, in no uncertain terms. And if they're not careful, I'll tell them a whole lot, you know. And, so, <laughs> and, uh, and it, but it is stupid that here I am, it, it couldn't be more isolated, for God's sake. Good chance by not even get back. And I'm going to, don't tell anybody, you <laughs> Jesus. That internet is not intended to be a prison, you know. And so I just, I just, I, right now, if somebody asks me, now, I, I, I've got enough sense to know when you're boring somebody. And, but I'll tell you what, and, and that's, I've been doing it now for probably 35 or 40 years. I have never had one single person who was less than eagerly interested. Not a single one who ever said, oh, that's nice. Not a single one. Because almost everybody has one in their tree somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so that time I say that, they say, well, I've been wanting to ask somebody. You know, so get into It's amazing what happens. I found an awful lot of alcoholics in hiding. And I found an awful lot of, of, of Al-Anons. You know, I got on a plane one day and was sitting with a, a, a rather well-nourished lady from Iowa. And uh, she, she, you know what I mean? She's a big girl. And uh, she, so we, we went through the routine, and, and she said, where are you going? I told her. And she said, what for? And I said, a conference. She said, what kind? I said, hey. hey. And I noticed she co- sort of cut a look at me when I said that, and, and so I was waiting for the next punch. And she said, you know, I used to be an Alanot. And I said, why would you quit? <laughs> she said, well, my husband died. And said, I just kind of drifted away. Now, I know this is going to be shocking to you, but she married another alcoholic. (laughs) That's hard to accommodate, but she did. She married another alcoholic. And she said, that sucker won't let me go to Al-Anon. And uh, I said, why not? She said, well, I don't know why not. He drank some too. It says he's afraid I'll make make him quit or something. And so he won't do it. She said, but you know what I'm going to do? I said, what, girl? And she said, I'm going to go home, and if that sucker tries to stop me, I'm going to knock him out. <laughs> I said, get a, get a girl. But, but see, it was anonymity, what it could have robbed, an inappropriate secrecy. That's not what it's about. You know, I want to be open and be helpful to people if I can. And, you know, if I can't, I'll leave them alone, you know. But by God, it, 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 it's just tremendous reward. I'll tell you just a couple more stories, like bedtime stories, and then we got to, yeah, we'll be all right. The, uh, 
the, uh, it's just fascinating to me about you know, how when you're free and you can just sort of engage with people and not well, just sort of paranoid looking hide and stay. Yeah, I, I was on a plane one. I, I was going from Chicago to some Fargo, North Dakota, in February. <laughs> what a thrill! I thought, God knows, good speakers are in Brazil or somewhere. I'm going to Fargo, North Dakota, and so I, I get on the plane, and there's a young woman sitting by the window, and I had the med- middle seat for some reason, and so I, I sat down, and we just started to chat a little. And ask those same inane questions, like, where are you going, Fargo? Where are you going, Fargo? And, uh, and I, I, I asked her why she was going to Fargo. And she said, well, uh, she said, I, I want to relocate, and there's a job for a librarian, and that's what I do. So I'm going there to uh, interview for a job as a librarian in Fargo. I said, well, that, that's good. I wish you well with that thing. And she said, well, where are you going? And uh, I said, I'm Fargo. What for? To, I said, go to conference. What time? AA. And uh, she didn't say anything. Uh, she was very interested in that. Uh, and she said, geez, that's really great. Uh, and then about the time she and I had concluded that, I looked up the aisle, and we were just about loaded, and there was a frantic-looking, red-haired woman coming down the aisle. And I said, uh-oh, I bet that's mine. She's coming to me, I can tell. She had that frantic look. And uh, so sure enough, here she came, sat down, went through the same litany. Her name was Kit, and she was from Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, went through the routine, both going to Fargo. And, and, and she, I, I said, now she had a very tragic situation. Her husband had just died of brain cancer. And she was going to, to Fargo <coughs> where her family lived for a grief period. And so uh, it was a very tragic case. And she said, why are you going to Fargo? And I said, uh, I'm going to conference. What kind? AA. Well, you would have thought I'd hit her with 220. I mean, she said, are you in recovery? I said, you better believe it, girl. <laughs> you better believe it. She said, me too, seven years. And I said, how about that? Well, you know, now we don't mean to be rude, but, but sometimes, I mean, my God, that was like magnet. You know? And so she and I just started really having a semi-closed meeting you can only hear it about half the plane. <laughs> we were having a great time and just getting ready to get in, and it dawned on me that I was as rude as could be to the girl that I was talking with. And so I turned around to her and I said, I apologize for that. I said, my God, we got started and then I got caught up with what we're doing. And I just totally ignored you and I apologize for that. She said, no, no, don't apologize. Everybody's got this. He said, I didn't tell you the whole story. (laughs) And she said, I am going to Fargo. And I am going to interview for a job. But it's not because of trying to advance my career. She said, I was to be married last Saturday. And I went to the church and I was dressed in my gown. And and, uh, went down there and my husband-to-be didn't show up. Well, can you imagine the humiliation it's just <coughs> mind-boggling. And and so she told me about that. And she said, don't you dare apologize for what you and this lady were talking about. Because that's what I didn't tell you. And I'm, the reason I'm going to Fargo is not to look for a job. It's to see if there's hope for me. And she said, after listening to you two, 
Man, is there ever hope for me? <laughs> so, and, so, you see, just a simple little thing. Yeah, we could have been there stony and got shut down and missed a marvelous opportunity to be helpful to somebody. Do no, there's no possible way to do any harm. And, and how many times have I deprived myself of that privilege by getting behind this little notion of don't tell anybody? You know, it's not anonymity. You know, not at all. It is either pride or fear that, that, that'll cause it. And so I, I just have a, a really great time in, in doing that kind of stuff. And it's, there's absolutely no violation. You know, the violation is hiding when there's no reason to. And so being open and being up here, I, I can't tell you how many times that, that has, has happened. I'm talking hundreds, not a few. I'm talking hundreds of times that that sort of a thing has happened. I'll tell you one more, and then this is a quick one. But the, um, I, was fly, I was flying one time, and we were coming in to land somewhere, and, and I, I noticed the guy beside me. You know, you know white knuckling? I mean, this guy had a death grip on those handles, you know, and, and I mean, you could tell that he was not having a good time. And so he's gripping those things. I thought, do I act like I don't see him, not run the risk of embarrassing him, or do I just go ahead and barge in? I said, I chose the latter. And I, I said, uh, tough, ain't it? <laughs> he said, the guy just came unglued. He said, my God, mister, you don't know how bad it is. He said, I fly for a living. I'm a salesman. I have to fly. There's no other way I can get by. And he said, every time they take off and land, I am so terrified, I don't know what to do. I, I think just coloring the truth a little bit is okay if it's for a spiritual purpose. And so, so I said to him, you know, I had that problem one time. I didn't tell him it lasted about 10 seconds and was over and never again. I didn't tell him that part. He didn't have to know the whole story. And he, he and I told him that, he said, my God, what'd you do? And I said, well, I am, I'm in a program and we have a simple little prayer that just works for me beautifully. And he said, what's the prayer? And so I recited the serenity prayer to him. And that's like every salesman, he had a pad in his pocket. So he, really, he said, wait a minute. He got that pad out. He said, tell me that again. <laughs> and so he wrote down, transcribed the, the Serenity Prayer. Now, what's the harm, eh? Yeah, what's the harm? Now, whether it'll do any good, who knows? But at least he didn't get some cold, stony dude sitting over there paying no attention. He got somebody that was attentive and tried to be helpful. There's no loss in that for anybody. And so... The, the whole thing of, of what I'm dealing with right now is that thing that anonymity is not about fearful hiding. It's about protecting against that ego. It's about putting myself up so that I've got to be notarized, not be notorious or stuff like that. It, but it's not about secrecy. It, 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 it's, a, it, it's that thing of being able to not take credit and all this kind of stuff. So it's not intended to be a jail. It's intended just to protect me from myself. So, as fast as I could go. <laughs> yeah, anybody want to comment or anything before we, before we say adios? It's a bedtime. We have a girl in our group, but she never had chaired before. She got up. I guess she thought she was at home with her kids or something. She got up in front of the group. They're going to lead the serenity prayer. She said, close your eyes. <laughs>
So everybody closed their eyes and then we started to pray. <laughs> so <laughs> whatever, it didn't hurt anything. Uh, so get good stuff. You know, I, I hope you like going through this kind of thing because it really is a dimension of recovery that I think is just enormously important. A lot of times we treat traditions like it's hard work. It isn't. It's about this thing of being able to live in harmony and effectively with the world around us. That's what it's about. And we don't have to live in fear and in hiding. We really can just reach out and engage. So good to see you. I hope you'll have a good night. I can't wait to get on my absolute, absolutely wonderful bed. <laughs> and, I, and I hope you'll have a good night, too. See you in the morning. Thank you.